Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club, which is just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. Somehow it is both already August and only eight months into the year 2020. But either way, our pick this month is called Members Only. At its core, it's about Raj, who's a middle-aged Indian-American man, and he's trying to get through life without making anyone too mad, but also really tired of living that way. It takes place over the course of one extremely stressful week in which Raj makes a very public and very embarrassing blunder. At the end of this month, we're going to have a super spoilery panel discussion all about members only. But today we are going to have a spoiler free chat with the author, Samir Pandya. He's with us now. Samir, hi. Hey, Greta. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I, yeah, suddenly August has arrived. and Isn't that just like the weirdest thing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird, particularly when time has become so strange and yeah. then suddenly it just pops up. Yeah. So here we are. <laughs> okay. So I don't want to give too much of the storyline away because uh, this is a very plotty book and I love that about it. Um, but I think it's fair to say that in the opening pages of this story, we meet Raj, who's a member at a tennis club, and he's been chosen to be on a committee to help choose new members of this club, which he's taking really seriously as an opportunity, especially to help bring some diversity to this group of people in Southern California. And a black couple comes in for an interview, and Raj is thrilled. Um, But in his moment of, like, overeager excitement, he manages to say the N-word in what he means to be sort of like a fun camaraderie kind of way. But, like, he can tell immediately that it, like, completely backfired. Um, So with that said, I'm really curious why you chose to tell this kind of parable about race and, like, being in the middle ground in a lot of different spaces at a tennis club. Yeah. Um, This particular tennis club that I have fictionalized here is Mm -hmm. a very California type of place, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is it's not every California tennis club, but what I had envisioned is that it is this very liberal space, right? This idea that it is concerned with its clubbiness Uh, even Mm -hmm. as it is kind of performing its progressiveness. So I think it was both, of course, the the tennis club that I was interested in, but I think the tennis club, I very quickly realized, allowed me to think through this social space that I'm, you know, that I have lived in and that I'm really interested in exploring. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like the perfect metaphor for kind of like the allure of, being allowed into exclusive spaces, but the the hard truth that like an exclusive space is inherently 
literally not inclusive. That is exactly that is exactly right, right? And yet the thing that Raj keeps thinking about, which is, you know, he, he's trained as an anthropologist, right? He, he's an <laughs> academic. So yeah. he knows what's up and down, right? So he's not a, a fool walking into the situation that when he became a member, he did not think that suddenly the place was going to change. Um, and yet I do think that what I hope to give Raj is something that we all kind of hold on to, which is that maybe this time that my presence, meaning Raj's presence, will be the start of something new. Hmm. So that possibly, I know that this is an exclusive place, I think, as you said, such a great way of thinking about it, that part of Raj's hope is that maybe I'll be the one that changes it. And I think Mm -hmm. it's that kind of optimistic hope that we all kind of hang on to when we go into social spaces that we know do not kind of work in the way that we want to. And yet we feel like maybe we're going to be the ones that help kind of foster some of that change. So obviously this is a novel, but it seems like you put a lot of your own truths in this book, even from just like a purely biographical perspective, right? Like Mm -hmm. you mentioned that Raj grew up in Bombay and moved to America when he was eight. And it was the same for you, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then you're both professors in Southern California. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with tennis? Because it seems like such an important piece of of your experience kind of figuring stuff out in the U.S. a little bit too, right? Yeah. No, it, it's – so I, I came here when I was eight, and it's, it's the same biography that I give Raj. And I played cricket as a kid in, in India, and, you know – Tennis was in some ways a happenstance. We moved, my family and I, we moved to the Bay Area, to the East Bay, and Mm -hmm. we happened to move into a condominium complex uh, maybe six months after we arrived that had a tennis court and nobody ever played on the tennis court. (laughs) Just these like empty courts. It was just, it was just, it's just one empty court that I would look at (laughs) longingly. And then at some point, this, dude started showing up. He was, you know, now in my memory, it's just hard to keep it all clear. Um, he's in his, I think he was in his fifties or sixties. Which come... like when you're a kid, it was just like this old guy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so old guy shows up with a bag full of balls and a dog and starts taking serves. Right. And um, eventually because I wanted to pet the dog, I went down and this was my first tennis lesson. You know, he, uh, I, I, at first I would collect all his tennis balls. And uh, then later he gave me my first lesson and my first, first tennis racket. And, you know, this, th- th- this lays it on a little thick, but, you know, he taught me how to kind of grip for a forehand and then yeah. slightly shift the grip for the backhand. And I remember this moment as my first kind of tennis lesson, but of course, <laughs> I don't think he intended to teach me that, this is what this brown space that you may or may not exist in is going to ask of you, right? Which is how do you shift grips depending on the situation you find yourself in, right? So I think tennis for me is purely kind of aesthetically something that I love, but I think as metaphor, it works itself in such interesting ways. So it's like in some ways, tennis is not that different from 
I, I don't know, like novel writing, right? Like you never really <laughs> master the thing. You don't say, okay, I got that thing done. And now I can move on to like sonnets, you know? And so I, I, I think that's what's actually fun about it. You kind of find, once again, you show up and you don't quite know what you're doing and you have to relearn things. You just kind of have to figure it out as you go. Yeah, yeah. So you worked on Members Only for several years before it came out, right? Mm-hmm. So how surprised were you when this book was released in the midst of, you know, pretty intense conversations around racism kind of reaching a fever pitch? I'm thinking about George Floyd. I'm thinking about protests across the United States. You know, obviously, these are themes that have been resonating with you for a really long time. But I wonder if it felt particularly surprising to to have this book come out in that moment. Yeah. You know, I think. No. no, no. <laughs> I mean, surprising is, I mean, let me ask you, I mean, surprising meaning that is it a surprise that that we are having this conversation in the way that we're having it? No, no. Maybe surprise just isn't the right word. I mean, maybe the answer is obviously no. I think there's just something really interesting about when a book like this comes out at a moment like this. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. And I guess I'm just curious, I don't know, the extent to which it was devastating to write a book that is about so many of the things that so many people are wrestling with at a time when people seem to be wrestling it with, at least white people seem to be wrestling with it more than they may have six months ago or three years ago, you know? I mean, that's interesting. It's in fact, it might be the exact opposite of devastating, right? It almost, it almost feels like a relief. Hmm. And let me explain what I mean by relief, meaning that when I started writing this book, I felt really nervous and Hmm. I felt nervous because I wasn't sure I was ready to kind of take on this particular story. Right. I I was nervous because obviously, even though you you begin with a story and not a theme, I was very much taking on the issue of my own racial identity of kind of the larger question of race uh, that this country has had and has continued to have continue to have right now. And Mm -hmm. so when I say relief, that it's almost like this thing that I had been working on for a long time and kind of was trying to push myself into thinking about, trying to be clear about. Now, if suddenly these are the larger conversations that we're all having, it's almost as if I don't have to, the, the, the relief is that people are already thinking about it right? Mm-hmm. People are already mm-hmm. having conversations about it. And part of the relief also is that what I am trying to do with this book is I am trying to show that race in this country works on multiple, multiple registers. Mm-hmm. Its strength, its power, its lasting ability is because it you know finds all sorts of different streams to kind of flow into. And um, what is interesting and exciting about this moment is that we are collectively beginning to have those conversations, right? Yeah. And so um, it it, it is, it's almost like the the moment gave me kind of the, 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 the freedom and the ease 
to talk about the kinds of things that I think I've spent a lot of time in my own office, in my own head, with my own friends talking about, right? So it's almost yeah. like that private conversation suddenly became public. And, you know, you don't always want private conversations to be public, but <laughs> right. I'm totally good with it, you know? Yeah. So while Raj is feeling super guilty about this 10X Club thing, he also gets in some trouble at work. And as we mentioned, he's a lecturer at a university. He's an anthropologist. And some of his students accuse him of reverse racism, of of criticizing Western culture too much. And, you know, there are like angry viral blog posts and like tens of thousands of comments and videos. He gets calls to his house. You know, it like totally gets it's completely out of his control. And it's scary. And it kind of seems like he's at the receiving end of what a lot of people call cancel culture which creates such a fascinating, I, I mean, elimination of the dichotomy that we often think about, right? Where like he, at, at one end, he's like trying to convince that this tennis club, that he's not racist against black people. And then on the other end, he's trying to convince his students and these, you know, super conservative folks that he doesn't hate Christians. Why did you decide to position Raj in the middle of both of these dynamics in, in one week? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let me let me see if I can think about this in a, in a couple of ways, right? So the first is, it is precisely this middle space that I'm interested in with Raj, mm-hmm. right? Which is that, mm-hmm. in in a way, this idea that his brownness is such a shifting racial identity that mm-hmm. all sorts of things can be displaced onto his brownness, right? Which is that there's a way in which Suzanne and the committee can legislate kind of the way in which he is supposed to apologize, right? Right, right. Everybody's telling him how to apologize. Exactly, right? And I think that that is kind of a part of the, the, the story here, right? Which is not only how everyone is asking him to apologize, but equally who gets to make mistakes and survive those mistakes, Yeah, yeah, which is something I've been thinking about a lot, especially in terms of the conversation around cancel culture, because we're all human and we all need to be able to fuck up now and then, you know? Yes, we do. And I think what's happened, and I've noticed this lately about this phrase cancel culture, right? That we are human and we are allowed to make these mistakes and to be able to have conversations around the mistakes that we make, right? And mm-hmm. this is partly why I wanted Raj to be making these mistakes, right? So that I think as you were saying a moment ago is it becomes, I wanted to break down that dichotomy a little bit, right? In terms of yeah. who's the victim and who is not. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about the phrase cancel culture is that it is now weaponized in all sorts of ways, meaning that yes. everybody is using it. So yes. anything happens, cancel culture. And so, what we're not doing, which is, I think, hopefully, you know, and I don't use the phrase in the novel at all, but what the novel is trying to help us think about is that whatever these debates we're having about cancel culture is that there is a deeper festering wound, right? And mm-hmm. that we are not attending to the wound. We are kind of putting a Band-Aid on and moving on, right? So when mm-hmm. Suzanne says, just apologize, When Robert says, just apologize, that is a request to kind of soothe things over and move along, right? And if you you don't do it, then the risk is that you don't get to come back. 
And I think part of what I've been trying to think through with this book and also this larger you know, question of this phrase is that we tend to sometimes ignore the conversations that are going on beneath kind of this desire, right? And, and in some ways, we're also kind of not allowing that conversation to occur as well. Right, because to a certain extent, I think, especially in American culture, we love a redemption arc, right? You think about in books and movies, like we, that happens all the time. But I think in real life, it's a lot harder. You know, I've thought about this a lot in terms of the Me Too stuff, you know, like there have been so many accusations that span such a huge spectrum of bad behavior. And, and yes, some of these people should go to jail. A lot of these situations are much more complicated. And I think you could totally relate this to, to racist behaviors too, right? To a certain extent, we need to figure out a framework where people can make mistakes and apologize for them effectively and learn from them and then not make the same mistake again. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that is this interesting moment, right? That there is such a range of, of acts. There's such a range of mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. And we are in, you know, in a way we are so close to the movie screen so that everything sometimes to me feels blurry, right? (laughs) That's such a good way of putting it. Yeah. And that if we kind of go further and further back, if we give ourselves the time, we can begin to distinguish things, right? And I think you're totally right that there are just examples. And I think the Me Too kind of parallel examples is, is a great one, right? That there's, no one's going to argue that this right. th- th- this is criminal behavior. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's part of the, the point that I was trying to make about this kind of deeper festering wound, which is that we can find quick fixes, but getting the deeper, harder fixes is just going to be way more work, right? And it, it's, it's going to be, in fact, way more, more uncomfortable than the, than the quick fix that we want to do, right? It's because it's requiring us to kind of rethink a lot, right? It's, it's what Raj is asking in many ways of the TC, which is... The club, yeah. You can, the, the club, you can ask me to apologize, but maybe what you're not actually like really looking at is why we're here in the first place. Right. Why am I the guy who is kind of taking the fall of the kind of the history of exclusion that this club has quietly and not so quietly engaged in for decades? Right. Because I think a lot of it, too, is why don't you stop policing my behavior and start looking at your own? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Raj knows from the very beginning that he completely screwed up. That is never in question. He says it immediately. He says it again and again to himself, to his wife, Eva, to in some ways to anyone who will listen. And but I think what he keeps saying is, I didn't do this by myself. We are all completely involved in how this place works and the history this place has. And that's what he's asking of them, right? Which is just like, hey, let's let's take a look at kind of how we got here. More with Samir in just a minute.
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So, yeah, before I let you go, I'm just really curious what you're working on next. You have at least one novel that's that you've been working on for a while now, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm laughing because I have forever wanted to write a novel about India. You know, I, I, I lived there until I was eight. And I, there's a funny thing, right, which is people always ask, like, do you remember anything? And I'm like, absolutely. Like, you know, eight, from from when you're born till age eight, like I just feel like all this stuff gets stuffed in your brain and you spend basically the rest of your life unfurling it all, right? I moved from where I was born when I was eight also. So I feel like I can acutely relate to what you're saying. Totally. That's it, it, interesting. And so I have always wanted to kind of write this book on India. And I think I am returning back to it because on a certain level, I needed to write this American novel first, Hmm. right? And and that's part of kind of one of the things I want to say about this book, right? Which is that it is, you know, very much this book about my American life, right? And what I've realized about my American life is that India is a clear presence within it. Uh, Maybe just not the presence that I thought it was, right? And there's a way in which there's a backstory here of Raj returning to India to do his dissertation research mm-hmm. and how what happens to his hometown and the violence that it is engulfed in uh, shapes his present in very kind of clear ways. Mm-hmm. All of this is to say is that, you know, I'm working on this book on India, but I think what I've come to realize is that it is much more of a book about memory rather mm-hmm. than it is a book about India. And India is just the place where it takes place, but it's kind of, working through kind of my sense of the place that uh, I'm trying to wrestle with at the moment. Interesting. Wow. Well, I look forward to reading that and your collection of sonnets. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So at some point, I can hope that Patrick Stewart can read them aloud for me. Oh, my God. I feel like if I I hit that moment, I I will have arrived. I mean, yeah. amazing. Samir, thank you so much for writing such a thoughtful book and for taking the time to chat with me today. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. This is great. So uh, I appreciate it and I appreciate your time. Now that you've heard this chat with Samir, I am sure you're like, okay, 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 Greta, I totally want to read this book. Well, it is called Members Only and it's great. And I'm really looking forward to our panel discussion, which is taking place on the last Friday of August. Of course, we want to hear what you think of the book. Just send us a voicemail with thoughts or questions or observations. All you need to do is record yourself on your phone and then email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Do it before we record on Wednesday at the 26th. 
The show is produced by me along with Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. And hey, this coming Tuesday marks the centennial of women's suffrage in the United States. And you better bet we've got a great interview to talk all about it. So make sure to tune into that one as well. And we will see you next week. Sweet. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.